Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 18th, 2020, and this is show number 806. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was a blast as my good friend Lori Gill, managing editor of iMore, joined me again to talk about all the fun new toys Apple announced this week. I asked her to play a game where she got points if she could drop in our discussion any of the buzzwords nanoceramic crystals, nanocrystal and shield, magnetic flux, and magnetometer. However, she would lose points for every time she said 5G. I am delighted to tell you she did not say 5G one single time, and she worked all but magnetic flux into the conversation. Well, the last time Lori was on, she talked about how much she was hoping Apple would come out with a mini iPhone, so it was a lot of fun hearing her talk about how joyful it made her when they came out with the 12 mini. We focused first on what the four phone models have in common and how cool it is that so much of the really important capabilities are on all of the phones, so everybody gets to play, and how the Mini isn't really a compromise from the 12. Lori got a quite or got quite imaginative in thinking about what will we be able to do with an iPhone with a MagSafe connector. I don't want to spoil her idea because it's really funny. Well, after that, we stuck in a little bit uh, on what differentiates the Pro models from each other and from the regular 12 model and whether we care. We did spend a little time on a HomePod Mini, mostly talking about how many we hope to buy when they come out. As always, talking to Lori was joyful and fun, so I know if you subscribe to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, you'll have a smile on your face as you listen to Lori. Of course, you can also follow the link in the show notes to listen right over at podfeet.com. Two weeks ago, I did a review of a service called Loom, and that service allows you to record and upload videos real-time of your screen and your webcam. Well, this week they came out with some fairly significant changes. They still have a free tier, but they're incorporating some business and team stuff into it. According to their blog post announcing the changes, you now get a team library, a shared library, and unlimited viewers can join your workspace. You can have 25 creators in your team as well. However, the free plan is now limited to five-minute-long videos. Now, for the occasional user who just wants to, you know, show a bug to a developer or teach a short task, I think five minutes is a reasonable length of time for a free service. It might mean really planning out what you have to demonstrate and to make your videos crisp and to the point, but you know what? That's way better for your viewer anyway. I also discovered something else after doing the review. I was on a free trial of their $10 a month plan. So that explains why I was getting 1080p video uploads, which I mentioned in my review, even though the free tier was only supposed to be able to do 720p. I also discovered that the free tier doesn't have the video drawing tool. Remember I suggested you use that very sparingly so as not to annoy your viewers? I also talked about the calls to action, and that's only available on the $10 a month plan as well. That's a tool that allows you to embed a URL into a video. They also simplified the plan, so there's just Starter, the free plan, and Business, the $10 per month plan. And they emphasize that it's still free for education. I think, like I said, if you're doing a lot of video screen captures that you need to share with teammates, developers, or friends and family to teach them, Loom makes it super easy and quick, and it is totally worth $10. If you only need to make short-form video screen recordings from time to time, the Starter free tier is still a really great option. Back in July, listener Kurt Liebezeit told me about a review he wanted to do for the show. I forgot all about that he'd said he was going to do that until this week when he sent it in. 
I can't believe this is his first review because it's absolutely fantastic. It is such a cool tool and he has a great delivery. This is a review of the iOS and iPadOS app called The Photographer's Ephemeris from Crookneck Apps. The Photographer's Ephemeris is a photography planning application, specifically an app for planning landscape photography involving the sun or the moon. Recall for a moment Ansel Adams' celebrated photograph of Moon and Half Dome taken in Yosemite National Park, California. The photograph shows the moon just off the face of Half Dome, a granite rock formation, in a particular position that creates a nice composition. If you wanted to recreate that photograph today, how would you do it? Camp out in Yosemite 13 times a year at the time of the full moon and spend all day waiting for the moon to get in position? Hoping to get it right? No, you would buy the photographer's ephemeris app, spend 10 minutes planning the shot, and drive out to Yosemite on the day, hour, and minute when the alignment was going to be to your liking and take your photograph. So, the problem to be solved is, how do you efficiently plan a landscape photograph involving the sun or moon so that on the day you go to the location, the sun or moon is in the right place? That is the problem that this app solves. There are two main inputs you must supply to the app. Where do you want to stand with your camera, and where is the primary landscape feature that you want to include in your composition? The primary output of the app is a list of dates and times that meet your requirements. As you might expect, the primary user interface elements of the photographer's ephemeris, or TPE for short, are a map and a timeline to choose a time. Actually, there are several maps that you can use in the app. Apple Maps, Google's Map, OpenStreetMaps, Topographical Map, and even a satellite photo view. You can interact with the map in the usual ways. You search for something by name, you can swipe on the map to move around, and you can pinch, unpinch to zoom out or zoom in. Things get more interesting once you place a red pin on the map for camera location and a gray pin for the landscape element of interest. Once you do that, TPE understands the distance and height difference between the two points and will show you a cross-sectional view of the landscape elevation between the two points. One nice feature is that this cross-sectional view also predicts what parts of the terrain between the two pins will be observable from the camera location. Solid portions of the line mean that the intervening feature is observable, while dotted lines indicate portions of the cross-section that lie on, quote, the backside of the hill. Now all you have to do is specify a time. The time control is a double ribbon below the map. One strip is annotated with various interesting celestial moments, such as sunrise, moonrise, start of civil twilight, etc. There are many different celestial events to choose from. The other ribbon is the actual timeline and shows sinusoids that represent the procession of the sun and moon in the sky. By swiping on the timeline, you can advance or retard the virtual clock, or by tapping on a named celestial event, you will set the clock to that event directly. If you've previously placed a red pin representing the camera position, the azimuth angle of the sun and moon will be represented by lines emanating from the red pin camera location. 
while the elevation of the sun will change in the cross-sectional view below. As you swipe the timeline to change the time, the lines representing the sun and moon sweep around radially from east to south to west relative to your camera position, so you can predict the angle of the sun or moon at any desired moment on any particular day at a particular point where the red pin is set. Of course, all the outputs of celestial object azimuth and altitude angle are given numerically as well, so you can use TPE for unusual situations involving buildings of a certain height, etc. You can jump ahead by days in the time or even manually choose a specific day and time. The real power of the photographer's ephemeris, however, lies in its search capability. Once you have set a red pin for camera location and a gray pin for a landscape feature, you can tap on the search tab and it will bring up a sheet of search parameters. The most important parameters, azimuth and altitude angle, will be carried over from the map view, but you can still tweak them here as well. The other must-choose parameter is whether you're interested in the sun or the moon's position. There are also several minor tweaks you can adjust on the search page, such as whether to give priority to azimuth or altitude during the search, what tolerance and angle you want, etc. Then, when you tap the search button, TPE will advance forward in virtual time to find the days, hours, minutes that meet your search specification. The search results will come back in the form of a list with the closest match results annotated with an asterisk. Tapping on a list item will set the main map interface time, so that when you change back to the map view, you can tweak the timing if necessary to position the sun above or to the side of your landscape element. TPE has useful housekeeping features, such as the ability to name and save locations, or export a setup to your calendar, email, or another person via messages or email. For devices that support it, the app can do an augmented reality display of the path of the sun or moon. This only works at the location where you are presently standing, however, meaning you can't project yourself into arbitrary locations a la Google Street Maps and look around. The app also has a tie-in with an extra cost service called Skyfire that helps predict when the weather is going to be especially interesting for sunrises and sunsets. One thing that I particularly appreciated about the developer is that he has posted a series of video tutorials on Vimeo that will help you master the app successfully. So, how well does it all work? I think that the app is well designed and intuitive to use. It's priced reasonably at $9.99 in the iOS App Store, and a single purchase allows you to use it on both iPhone and iPad. It doesn't do every possible task in preparing for a landscape photograph, but it does do one crucial job well, that of helping you find when the sun or moon will be in relationship to a landscape feature that you're interested in photographing. It's worth mentioning that TPE is one of a trio of apps put out by Crookneck. Perhaps when I've had a chance to evaluate the others, I'll post another review. I would say that the main practical limitation of the app is that it works best if you've been in the area already once and wish to plan a subsequent trip after looking around. 
For instance, on a recent hike to Ramona Falls on Mount Hood, we crossed the Sandy River at one point, and I looked east up the riverbed to where the peak was off in the distance. I was curious about when the full moon might appear over the shoulder of Mount Hood, and when I got home, I did a search on the photographer's ephemeris. If you're out on the Ramona Falls Trail on Thursday, October 29th at 7.18 p.m., say howdy. Oh, that was fantastic, Kurt. I really, really like that. You know, I don't do a lot of landscape photography myself, but I would totally use the photographer's ephemeris if I did. I know that Bart is going to lose his mind. He's going to love this one. Well, if you've been hit financially by what's going on in the world, I want you to fast forward about 30 seconds from right now. If you've not been hit financially and can afford to help support the PodFeed podcast, I hope you'll first donate to some food banks or any other organizations that are working to help those in need. If after that, you think it would make you feel good to support the work that goes into making the PodFeed podcast bring you value, then please consider going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and choose an amount that makes you happy. Well, next up, we're going to have a second listener review in a row because the one I'm going to do will make way more sense after you hear this one from Marty. Hello, fellow castaways. Marty Gentius here, known in the castaways chat room as Drunk Nick Nolte. My relationship with my Apple Watch has been one rocky one over the years. Typically, I would put it on and never look at it. It was my third other screen after my desktop and my phone. I kept upgrading my watch and kept using it less, particularly when my COVID days are spent working from home in front of a computer. So when the latest Apple Watch Series 6 was announced, I was faced with a new watch and new watch band choices. One of the things that I believe had influenced my lack of regular watch wearing was finding a watch band that felt like it disappeared on my wrist. I've been through all of the different watch bands you can think of before the latest watch. My first watch came with a leather clasp band, believing that was the only option that would fit my Hulk-sized wrists. It did fit when I used one of the wider-sized notches, but I would constantly switch between one notch and the other throughout the day. Same with the fluoroelastomer sport band. Too tight and too sweaty, or too loose and jiggling around my wrist. Milanese loops and magnetic loops would eventually slip and loosen, although the lightness and comfort of the sport loop seemed to become my favorite style of band for that reason, I found myself regularly unfastening the Velcro and refastening it, like a batter and their batting glove, each time after making any regular movement. I tolerated having to Velcro and unvelcro throughout the day so I never forgot it was there. When Series 6 was announced, for the model I wanted, 44mm blue aluminum, the default new watch band was another sport loop. There was an extra large option for the charcoal band, increasing the standard size from 145 to 220 millimeters to the extra large version of 170 to 245 millimeters. I wasn't sure if the extra-large would be too bulky, but I figured if it was, I'd use a regular-sized sport loop that I already own. I was curious about the solo loop and ordered one to try it out. 
To have an accurate fit, I printed out the wrist measure and my Hulk wrists made a tight fit at the maximum available size of 12. Delivery estimates for two weeks when I ordered the watch in the solo loop immediately after the Apple event. As it turned out, they both arrived early, a nice surprise, and just six days later. The extra-large sport loop was no surprise on how it feels on the wrist, like the sport loop that we've had for a couple of generations of Apple Watches. The standard size sport loop fits me with just enough clearance to fold back the Velcro on itself. The extra-large version folded back and across the bottom of my wrist, giving a double layer on the underside of my wrist, which, for me, tended to catch on things more than the shorter sport loop that closed on the side. Then I tried the solo loop, and it was a game-changer for me. The solo loop attaches to the watch, and then you stretch it over your hand to have it spring down to the size of your wrist. I had sized it correctly, so it fits snugly on my wrist. When you first put it on, you notice it, but after an hour or so of wearing it, the loop disappears into your arm. I also didn't have the constant loosening and tightening that I had with the sport loop or the sport band. One concern I had was with the compressed loop style in the solo loop, would I be experiencing more sweat like the sport band? Not the case. The thinner material in the solo loop seems to adjust to the temperature and feels breathable compared to the sport band. I tried to find words to describe the feel of the solo loop to my friends, and the best I could come up with was that it felt like I was wearing a band-aid that went around my wrist with a watch on it. Since I have sleep apnea, I was particularly interested in checking blood oxygen levels throughout the day and at night while I sleep. The solo loop was the first band I would wear without feeling tied down while I slept. I'm using my watch more reliably throughout the day now that it spends more time on my wrist. Sometimes I want to take it off to give my wrist some freedom, but that usually happens when it's time to shower or a short nap, which gives me time to charge it for overnight wear. I did order a braided solo loop and looking forward to its arrival. The solo band now takes its place alongside the other $49 Apple Watch band, the Sport Loop. I think it's a worthy option. Well, thanks, Marty. This was great. I was really trying hard to stop buying Apple Watch bands because it's like an addiction. But now I think I have to have a solo loop because of you. I did I hand off of some tech with my good friend Pat Dengler recently, and she let me try hers on. And I have to say, it was as lovely as you described. I tried to just, you know, take hers, but she wouldn't let me keep it. Now, I told all of you that my recording would make sense after listening to Marty's. My topic is not about watch bands at all, but remember the very first thing Marty said. He said, my relationship with my Apple Watch has been a rocky one over the years. Typically, I would put it on and never look at it. It was my third other screen after my desktop and my phone. I kept upgrading my watch and kept using it less, particularly when my COVID days are spent working from home in front of a computer. So, he does not find that he uses his watch very much, and I'm kind of in the opposite camp. As you've probably figured out by now, I am a fan of the Apple Watch. People often ask me, why do you like it so much? And those same people often start with, I don't want to work out, so what else is it good for? Clearly, they're starting with an open mind. 
Anyway, this approach kind of leaves me flustered because recording my activity is a huge part of my joy with the Apple Watch. So I kind of mumble something about, well, it does fall detection too, and I wander away. I know I use it constantly and I'd be lost without it, but what is it that I actually use on the Apple Watch? I finally figured out how to really characterize what the Apple Watch does for me by writing down everything I do with it in a single day. We're going to call this a day in the life of an Apple Watch. Steve and Tessa wake me up around 6.30 a.m. and the first thing I do is put on my Apple Watch and check the time. Now, Steve is pretty precise, but it's important to, you know, check him and make sure he didn't get me up too early or too late. Next up, it's time to brush my teeth. My fanatical dentist makes me do a teeth treatment that takes 12 minutes. So I keep the timer complication on my watch face for easy access. I really like that the Apple Watch remembers the last few timers you've set, which means the 12-minute timer is always available in a single tap. Before starting my morning exercise, I check my blood oxygen level using the function now built into the Series 6 Apple Watch. The readings are automatically added to the Health app for me, so I can see a graph over time if things start to go south. Now, I also want to track my temperature, because that's another indicator we're supposed to be watching, but the Apple Watch does not do that for me. Like an animal, I take my forehead temperature using a dumb thermometer. I tech it up, though, by launching shortcuts on my Apple Watch and select the Log My Temp shortcut I found on the internet to add that data to the Health app as well. I'd better check the time on my watch again because I like to start my exercise by around 8.30 a.m. Yes, it takes me a full two hours from when I wake up until I get moving. That's one of the joys of retirement. Lately, I've started doing some high-intensity interval training Tabatas with a guy named Rainier Pollard on YouTube using the Apple TV. The most important thing about exercise is not burning calories. It's getting credit for burning those calories using your Apple Watch. The Apple Watch used to only have a very few workouts you could uh, track, but now they've got tons of them, so I'm able to set my Apple Watch to a hit workout before I start. Hit tapatas get my heart racing like no other exercise, which I guess is that whole point. I constantly check my heart rate because seeing it above 150 lets me know I'm really getting the job done burning calories. By the way, a tabata is 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, and I think you do that for four minutes, and then you get a one-minute rest. If the sweat wasn't enough to prove to me that I'm working out hard, the heart rate on my Apple Watch proves it. After my exercise, I flop down in my desk chair and I have some quality time with my Mac. Now, I keep a password on my Mac, as I'm sure you do. When I wake the Mac up, I don't have to unlock it myself because the Apple Watch does it for me. In security and privacy system preferences, you can enable this feature on your Mac. After I'm rested, I begin to get a bit peckish after after checking the time again on my Apple Watch to verify I have a reason to be hungry, that is, it's lunchtime, Steve and I head downstairs for our repast. About halfway through lunch most days, if you were watching us, you'd notice that we both look at our watches at the same time while we're eating lunch. That's because we both share our workout data with Bart, and that's the time he finishes one of his exercises. It strikes me as funny every time it happens that we look at our watches because someone on the other side of the world finished a bike ride. Now, I'm pretty good at carrying my phone around the house, so it's usually close by, but every once in a while, I've lost track of where it is. No problem. I swipe up on the watch face and tap the button to ping my iPhone in Control Center, and then I wander around the house listening for it until I find it. I would say I use this feature, well, I, I originally said three times a week. Let's, let's be honest, it's more than once a day. And I'm, I get really sad that I can't make other things ring using my Apple Watch so I can find them. 
Now, like most of us, I don't get a lot of phone calls or at least a lot of calls I want to answer. But once in a while, I get a call from a friend or a family member and I'm not right by my phone. I get a notification on my Apple Watch, and if it's someone I actually want to talk to, I answer them right on the watch. Believe it or not, the audio is surprisingly good for the person on the other end, or at least that's what they tell me. You know, Steve's mom is a big fan of the Apple Watch, and she astonished and amazed her friends the other day when she answered her iPhone using her Apple Watch. She is such a geek. Later in the afternoon on a typical day, I have to get in even more exercise. You see, I'm trying to keep up with how much I want to eat and drink, and that's why I exercise so much. I take our dog Tessa on walks in the neighborhood to burn off more calories. Now, Tessa prefers a short walk over to the schoolyard where she digs for gophers, but that walk doesn't burn a lot of calories. So before we leave, I look at my Apple Watch to see how many calories I need to to burn to close the rings on my goal of 680 calories per day. If it's showing that I'm only in the 400s, Tessa will not get her wish to go look play with the gophers. And instead, we'll go around three miles to our friend Ron's house instead. But if before we go, I have to check some things. First, I need to know the temperature, so I tap the weather complication on my Apple Watch face. Okay, it's always 72 degrees Fahrenheit in southern, sunny Southern California, but you know, sometimes it might be a bit brisk in the afternoon and I might have to put on a long sleeve shirt. Now, if it's not cold, though, I still need to know what the UV index is showing. I check that with the Apple Watch, and if it's three or higher, I slather my arms with sunscreen before venturing out. My face always gets sunscreen. Living in Southern California, that's what you got to do. Now, during the recent fires, I also check the air quality index as well. Even though we were more than 100 miles from the closest fires, we still had unhealthy air quality where it was recommending not to go outside. So assuming the air is good and I'm appropriately slathered, I don my Podfeet 15-year anniversary hat and I leash up Tesla, the dog, not the car, and set the workouts app on the Apple Watch to an open outdoor walk. As I walk away from the house, I'm comforted to read the notification on my Apple Watch that our August smart lock has locked the door behind me, since it knows by geofencing that I'm more than a block away, and I'm authenticated because my watch is on my wrist. I like to keep track of my progress, even on a path I've walked a hundred times, so I find it comforting when I feel the taptic engine on the Apple Watch give me a slight tap to notify me that I've completed each mile. I listen to podcasts using the Overcast application on my iPhone as I walk. One of the things I love about the Apple Watch is that if you're doing a workout, the exercise metrics stay on screen front and center, but if you swipe from right to left, you can see the audio controls for whatever app you're listening to. I often use this gesture on Apple Watch to fast forward 60 seconds to skip commercials I've heard a zillion times or to go back in 15 second increments to check something I missed. Of course, I could do this with my iPhone, but I would have to unzip my spy belt, pull out the phone, awaken it, and then type in my passcode when Face ID fails because of my mask and only then be able to go back 15 seconds. But of course, by that time, I got to go back 30 or 45 seconds. I could also use Siri, but Siri takes about, uh, I don't know, three minutes to do something like backup 15 seconds. So, Apple Watch it is. I listen mostly to tech podcasts, and I often hear something I want to remember to check into, like, you know, to look up a tool someone talked about or, you know, tell one of the SMR podcast guys how they were wrong. I use Siri on the Apple Watch with dictation to set a reminder so I don't forget. My walks are so long, because Tesla is really slow, that I often receive telegram messages from friends and family on my walks. Often it's Stephen Getz, and I enjoy our silly conversations enough that I like to respond to him when I get a notification. 
On the Apple Watch, you have several ways to respond, including a simple emoji, a stock phrase, and to scribble each letter out on the tiny screen. While that last option works surprisingly well, I find it tedious to use, so I use the option to dictate my responses. I don't understand why this is, and this is not scientific numbers here, but dictation on the Mac feels around like 80% accurate for me. Dictation on iPhone is better, it maybe it feels like 90%, but I swear that the Apple Watch dictation is the best of them all, maybe in like the 95% accurate range. You'd be surprised how many fun conversations I've had using my Apple Watch as my dictation machine. When I get home, if I fuss around long enough taking off Tesla's walking collar and leash, the August lock will have automatically unlocked for me because it sensed I was home. It's pretty darn reliable, but every once in a while it isn't open by the time I want to go in. Not a problem. I keep the August lock complication on my watch face so I can tap it once and then tap the green open button and I'm in. I can't remember the last time I even saw the keys to my house. You know, I don't even have a car key anymore because my phone, iPhone is my key to my car. Since I've been out of the house, I immediately wash my hands. I've always been what I thought was a pretty good hand washer, but the latest watchOS has improved my game. When you start to wash your hands, believe it or not, the Apple Watch hears the sound of water and soap being sloshed around and senses the motion and starts a bubbly countdown for you. It goes for 20 seconds, and you get credit for the time it was listening before it showed you the encouraging graphic, so it usually has about 15 seconds left when you first see it. When you're done, you get a thumbs up also made out of bubbles to tell you you've reached the goal. If you stop early, you get a supportive message explaining why washing for 20 seconds is important. I know this is one of those, you're not the boss of me things that people hate, but I'll tell you something. My hands feel different after washing for the full 20 seconds. I think they might be onto something here. After washing my hands, I check the time to see if I've come back late enough that I'll allow myself a glass of red wine. When you're retired, you know, every day can feel like a weekend, so you gotta pace yourself. Speaking of retired, you'll notice I haven't mentioned checking the calendar on my Apple Watch. My schedule has definitely loosened up quite a bit, so there are actually many days where it says no events. When it does say I have an event, that's kind of exciting for me. I do have to say, while it's, it's easy to bring up the calendar and that's a good thing to be able to see it on the watch face, I probably accidentally trigger the calendar on the Apple Watch more often than I actually need to look at it. So, my wine and, my, and I go back to my Mac while Steve makes me a tasty dinner. Yeah, I'm spoiled. Anyway, one evening recently, I was installing the Loom app, which is used for screen recording like I was just telling you about. It had to ask for permission in security and privacy in system preferences. I got a little Taptic Engine feedback on my Apple Watch to tell me I could authenticate simply by double tapping the side button on the watch. I have a touch bar Mac, so I could use my fingerprint, but I must say I can double tap that watch button without even looking at it while getting my finger in just the right spot on touch bar is a bit trickier. After dinner, if I've been good and I've made progress on writing articles for the podcast, go to my happy place, programming at my desk. Now there's one problem with programming, and it's that you can completely lose track of time. Even if my Apple Watch does remind me to stand, I'll think, yeah, 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 okay, in a minute, in a minute. And then it'll give me another taptic tap on the rest, and I'll angrily say out loud, I said in a minute, and then I look down at the time and I realize an entire hour has gone by. Now, while I work out anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes per day and nearly always exceed my 680 calorie goal by a wide margin, I often don't meet the stand goal. 
I kind of wish the Apple Watch would remind me every single hour at 10 till the hour, but it only seems to remind me when I'm in danger of missing the 12 stand goal. Now, everything I've described to you are things I actually do with my Apple Watch nearly every day. There are things about the Apple Watch that get infrequent use, but I'm still really glad that they're there. One day in the before times, Steve and I were outside of the little restaurant at our gym, and one of the wait staff started up the blender to make someone a smoothie. Both of our Apple Watches suddenly lit up with the noise app, telling us that prolonged exposure at that noise level would be damaging to our hearing. I was glad to know that this function works, just in case I'm ever in a loud environment for an extended period of time, and I don't realize how bad it is. But I also felt for the worker was probably running that blender all day long. I regret that I didn't take the time to talk to the management at the gym about it. I was taking a shower just recently, and the watch told me that the noise level had hit 90 decibels and that prolonged exposure would be a problem. Evidently, the watch was getting pummeled by the shower water, but I think I was fine. I monitored my, monitored my sleep for a few nights after getting the Series 6 Apple Watch because I finally had a watch with a battery that would last long enough with a you know short top-up. When you turn on sleep monitoring, it asks you when to go to bed, when you go to bed, and when you wake up. I put in 11 p.m. to go to sleep and 7 a.m. to wake up. I monitored my sleep for a few days, and the sleep app put the data right into the health app for me. Now, unfortunately, the health app on iPhone does a terrible job of telling you about the metrics it's collecting, but luckily, Sleep Plus Plus by David Smith does a great job of it. Using Sleep Plus Plus, I discovered that my efficiency of sleep is anywhere from 89 to 97%. Now, I'm sure a bunch of you are saying, well, this is why Allison thinks sleep tracking is stupid, because she sleeps so well. Actually, it isn't the reason, but I am sure it reduces my level of empathy for those who suffer from loss of sleep, because I don't really experience it. Now, my real reason for saying sleep tracking is stupid is because this data doesn't explain anything about the root cause of why someone doesn't sleep well. I put a link in the show notes to my article about that. Well, I brought up the point about the sleep app on Apple Watch asking you what time you go to sleep and wake up because this actually gave me fits. I didn't realize when I answered those questions, I was setting an alarm when I did that. At 7 a.m. every day while I was tracking my sleep, my Apple Watch would gently tap my wrist to tell me to wake up. That was fine, but even though I turned the alarm off, it went off again the next day. I went into alarms and I deleted the alarm. But the next morning, it went off on my Apple Watch Series 5 that was sitting on my bedside table. The 6 stopped doing it, but the 5 started doing it. I'd been alternating watches just for the fun of it. Instead of the Taptic engine going off, and uh, on the Series 5, it played a lovely, quiet little melody. So it was kind of kind of neat. I'm assuming since it wasn't on my wrist, this was the next best thing. The Taptic engine wouldn't have done much. But you know what? I didn't want the alarm at all. I deleted the alarm on the Series 5 like I had on the Series 6, and yet the next morning, it happened again. I got a message saying to delete the, ar- the alarm within the sleep app. But guess what? There's no way to do that, or at least I couldn't find it. I'm trying to remember how I got it to stop in the end, but I think it was actually disabling sleep that made it stop. Now, I guess if you want an alarm, it's a darn handy thing to have right on the watch, but good luck getting it to stop if you change your mind. Now, I come from a long line of clumsy people. The pod mom broke one of her toes so many times that they gave up fixing it and they took the bones out of that toe. It's actually kind of funny looking. She'd lift her foot up and the, little toe would, the middle toe would just kind of hang down there. My dad also broke his nose so many times that they were forced to remove all of the cartilage in his nose. He used to tape it over on the side of his face for Halloween. It was pretty funny. 
Well, ironically, whenever I would fall or trip, my mother would always say, you're always hurting yourself. Like it was inexplicable how I got that. Well, I bring this up because the Apple Watch has fall detection and I'm comforted to know it's there. I wish it had been there three years ago when I was walking Tesla to the vet and I tripped on a wheelchair ramp and I smacked my head on the concrete. Luckily, the woman in front of whose house I fell saw me go down, said it was kind of weird. She said she saw me walking along and all of a sudden I just wasn't there. Anyway, she picked me up off the concrete and got me some ice and some towels to mop up the blood and she called Steve. But if I'd been alone and actually passed out, it could have been life-saving to have emergency services notified. As it turned out, I was fine. I know I was fine because I asked the vet to check me out when we got there. I also broke my hand jogging. Well, people have corrected me. I didn't break it jogging. I broke it falling while jogging. Uh, I was in my neighborhood. And again, it would have been great to have my watch call someone. Like I said, it's comforting to know that it's there, but I'm very glad that I have not needed it yet. You'll also understand why every day when I leave on my long walk, Steve says, walk carefully. Last year, right before we went to Chile, I was jogging along the beach and I suddenly felt a tightness in my chest. I stopped and walked for a bit and it seemed to get better, so I started running again, but it happened again. I decided to use the electrocardiogram, so I'll try that again, the electrocardiogram built into the Apple Watch. I knew it wouldn't tell me if I was having a heart attack, but if it was atrial fibrillation, it might tell me that was what was wrong. The good news is the ECG showed a nice sinus rhythm, but I still followed up with a real doctor, of course. He executed a mini-lead ECG. I write mini-lead because I don't remember how many. Is it eight, six? It's a lot of them. And he did an ultrasound of my heart, and I was A-OK to go on the trip. The only thing I could figure out was that it was the stress of going on such a big trip. But again, it was comforting to know that I had the ECG on the watch to give me some indication of what might be going on. The bottom line here is when people ask me what the Apple Watch is good for other than working out, I'm often at a loss how to articulate it. But when I tracked it, what I did with it over the course of a couple of days, I found 3,495 words to say about it. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I want to give Steve big chops. We had some real technical difficulties getting going uh, streaming today, and he managed to move us from YouTube Live to Twitch mid-show and uh, so we actually were able to do some streaming. I don't know whether we're going to stick with that, what's going to go on, but it was kind of cool to see him uh, pull that off right in the live show. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions, your reviews like uh, Kurt and Marty did. Love that they did these reviews. That was fantastic. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. After you've donated to people who need it more than I do, you could go to podfeet.com slash Patreon or podfeet.com slash PayPal to do some donations. If you want to join in the conversation, we've of course got our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack and podfeet.com slash Facebook if you still like it over there. By the way, we've gotten a whole bunch of people joining into the Slack and I'm loving it ever since I've been talking about it again. It's so much fun over there. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and see Steve do his amazing tricks switching us over, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.